Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. I'm Bob, and thank you for listening. Please look around the site. We've got over 3,500 audios featuring great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies. My books are on Amazon.com, and you can contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. Please check out my new website that allows you to tune in to the new Hackberry Radio. Just go to hackberryhouseofchosun.com and take a look and a listen. I'm reading today from the Free Grace Broadcaster. That's a quarterly put out by the people at Mount Zion Bible Church, Pensacola, Florida. The topic this quarter is Precious Blood. And to speak on it, we're finishing an article we started last time we were with the Free Grace Broadcaster, and that's by Charles Spurgeon. In the middle of the message called, This is My Blood Shed for Many, he says, Our blessed Savior would have us hold his death in great reverence. It is to be our chief memory. Both the emblems of the Lord's Supper set forth the Savior's death. This peculiarly Christian ordinance teaches nothing if it does not teach this. Christ's death for man is the great doctrine of the church. We profess ourselves partakers of the merit of his death when we come to this table. Our Lord's death is then remembered, shown, declared, testified, and trusted in. Evidently, the Lord Jesus means us to treat the fact of his death as a truth to be made preeminently prominent. He would not have us instituted an ordinance specially to remind us of the shedding of his blood if he had not regarded it as the forefront of his whole earthly career. The other ordinance of our holy faith also sets forth our Lord's death. Are we not buried with him by baptism into death? Is not baptism an emblem of his being immersed beneath the waves of sorrow and death? Baptism shows us that participation in Christ's suffering by which we begin to live. The Lord's Supper shows us that participation in Christ's sufferings by which that life is sustained. Both institutions point to his death. Besides, beloved, we know from Holy Scripture that this doctrine of the death of Christ is the very core of Christianity. Leave out the cross and you've killed the religion of Jesus. Atonement by the blood of Jesus is not an arm of Christian truth. It is the heart of it. Even as the Lord said of the animal, the blood is the life thereof, so is it true of the gospel. The sacrificial death of Jesus is the vital point of our profession. I know nothing of Christianity without the blood of Christ. No teaching is healthy that throws the cross into the background. The other day, when I was inquiring about the welfare of a certain congregation, my informant told me that there had been few additions to the church, although the minister was a man of ability and industry. Furthermore, he let me see the reason for failure, for he added, I have attended there for several years, and during all that time I do not remember hearing a sermon upon the sacrifice of Christ. The atonement is not denied, but it is left out. Now, if this is so, what is to become of our churches? If the light of the atonement is put under a bushel, the darkness will be dense. In omitting the cross, you have cut the Achilles tendon of the church. It cannot move nor even stand when this is gone. Holy work falls to the ground. It faints and dies when the blood of Jesus is taken away. 
The cross must be put in the front more than ever by the faithful, because so many are unfaithful. Let us endeavor to make amends for the dishonor done to our divine master by those who deny or dishonor his vicarious sacrifice. Let us abide steadfast in this faith while others waver, and let us preach Christ crucified, if all else forbear. Grace, mercy, and peace be to all who exalt Christ crucified. Now this remembrance of the death of Christ must be a constant remembrance. The Lord's Supper was meant to be a frequent feast of fellowship. It is a grievous mistake of the church when the communion is held but once in the year or once in a quarter of a year. And I cannot remember any scripture which justifies once in the month. I should not feel satisfied without breaking bread on every Lord's Day. It has come to me even oftener than once a week, for it has been my delight to break bread with many a little company of Christian friends. Whenever this supper is celebrated, we declare that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. We cannot think of that death too often. Never was man blamed in heaven for preaching Christ too much. Nay, not even on earth to the sons of God was the cross ever too much spoken of. Outsiders may say, this man harps only upon one string. (laughs) Do you wonder? The carnal mind is enmity against God and it specially shows its hatred by railing at the cross. Saintly ones find here, in the perpetual monotony of the cross, a greater variety than in all other doctrines put together. Preach you Christ, and Christ, and Christ, and Christ, and nothing else but Christ, and open ears shall find in your ministry a wondrous harmony of linked sweetnesses, a charming perfectness of all manner of delicious voices. All good things lie within the compass of the cross. Its outstretched arms overshadow the whole world of thought. From the east even unto the west it sheds a hallowed influence. Meanwhile its foot is planted deep in the eternal mysteries, and its top pierces all earth-born clouds and rises to the throne of the Most High. Christ is lifted up upon the cross that he may draw all men unto him. And if we desire to draw them, This must be our magnet. Beloved, the precious blood of Christ should be had by us in vivid remembrance. There is something to me most homely about that cup filled with the fruit of the vine. The bread of the supper is the bread of our common meal, and the wine is the usual attendant of feasts. That same pure blood of the grape that is set on our sacramental table, I drink with my friend. Look at those ruby, ruddy drops, suggesting your Lord's own blood. I had not dared to invent the symbol, nor might any man of mortal mold have ventured on such a thing, lest he should seem to bring that august death down to our lowly level. But in infinite condescension, Jesus himself chooses the symbol, and while by its materialism, that is, existence in the material world, He sets forth the reality of the sacrifice. By its commonness, he shows how freely we may partake thereof. He would not have us know him after the flesh and forget the spiritual nature of his griefs, but yet he would have us know that he was in a real body when he bled, and that he died a real death and became most truly fit for burial. And therefore, he symbolizes his blood not by some airy fancy or mystic sign, 
but by common wine in the cup. Thus would he reach us by our eye and by our taste, using two gates of our nature that lead up to the castle of the heart, but are not often the king's roadway thereto. O blessed Master, dost thou arrange to teach us so forcibly? Then let us be impressed with the reality of the lesson, and never treat thy passion as a thing of sentiment, nor make it a myth, nor view it as a dream of poetry. Thou shalt be in death most real to us, even as is that cup whereof we drink. The dear memorials of our Lord's bloodshedding are intended for a personal remembrance. There is no Lord's Supper except as the wine touches the lip and is received into the communicant's own self. All must partake. He says, drink ye all of it. You cannot take the Lord's Supper by deputy or representative. You must, each of you, approach the table and personally eat and drink. Beloved, we must come into personal contact with the death of Christ. This is essential. We must each one say, he loved me and gave himself for me. In his blood, you must be personally washed. By his blood, you must be personally reconciled to God. Through his blood, you must personally have access to God. And by his blood, you must personally overcome the enemy of your souls. As the Israelites' own door must be smeared with the blood of the paschal lamb, so must you individually partake of the true sacrifice and know each one for himself the power of his redemption. As it is personal, it is a charming fact that it is a happy remembrance. Our remembrance of Christ is chastened with repentance, but it is also perfumed with faith. The Lord's Supper is no funeral meal, but a festival. Most fitly do we begin it with the giving of thanks and close it with a hymn. It is by many called the Eucharist, or the giving of thanks. It is not a fast, but a feast. My happiest moments are spent with the king at his table when his banner over me is love. The death of Christ is a wellspring of solemn joy. Before our great sacrifice died, the best token of his death was the blood of bulls and of goats. See how the victims writhe in death. The sacrificial knife does terrible work at the foot of the altar. It is hard to stand by and see the creatures bleed. After our Lord's death was over, the blood of animals was not the type, but the blood of the grape. That which was terrible in prospect is joyous in remembrance. That which was blood in the shedding is wine in the receiving. It came from him with a wound, but it comes to us with a blessing. His blood is our song in the house of our pilgrimage, and it shall add the best music to our heavenly harmonies as we sing before the throne. Unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. If our Lord Jesus has made the memory of his love to be sweeter than wine, let us never turn from it as though it had become a distasteful theme. Let us find our choicest pleasures at the cross. Once more our Savior meant us to maintain the doctrine of his death and the shedding of his blood for the remission of sins even to the end of time, for he made it to be of perpetual remembrance. We drink this cup till he come. If the Lord Jesus had foreseen with approbation the changes in religious thought that would be brought about by growing culture, 
He would surely have arranged a change of symbols to suit the change of doctrines. Would he not have warned us that towards the end of the 19th century, men would become so enlightened that the faith of Christendom must take a new departure? And therefore he had appointed a change of sacramental memorials. But he has not warned us of the coming of those eminently great and wise men who have changed all things and abolished the old-fashioned truths for which martyrs died. Brethren, I do not believe in the wisdom of these men, and their changes I abhor. But had there been any ground for such changes, the Lord's Supper would not have been made of perpetual obligation. The perpetuity of ordinances indicates a perpetuity of doctrine. But here the moderns talk. They say the apostles, the fathers, the Puritans, they were excellent men, no doubt, but then you see they lived before the uprise of those wonderful scientific men who have enlightened us so much. End of quote. Let me repeat what I have said. If we had come to a new point as to believing, should we not have come to a new point as to the ordinances in which those beliefs are embodied? I think so. The evident intent of Christ in giving us settled ordinances, and especially in settling this one that so clearly commemorates his bloodshedding, was that we might know that the truth of his sacrifice is forever fixed and settled and must unchangeably remain the essence of his gospel. Neither 19th century nor 19,000 centuries can make the slightest difference in this truth, nor in the relative proportion of this truth to other truths so long as this dispensation lasts. Until he comes a second time without a sin offering unto salvation, the grand work of his first coming must be kept first and foremost in all our teaching, trusting, and testifying. As in the southern hemisphere, the cross is the mariner's guide, so under all skies is the death of our Redeemer, the pole star of our hope upon the sea of life. In life and in death, We will glory in the cross of Christ and never be ashamed of it, be we where we may. Now, all of those words, and last time also, was from a sermon delivered on Lord's Day morning, July 3rd, 1887, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington, England. Thank you so much again. I know you would like to have a little quarterly like this delivered right to your door every three months. And it will be if you just ask the people at the Free Grace Broadcaster or chapel at mountzion.org. Again, that's chapel at mountzion.org. Mount Zion Bible Church will send you this quarterly free every month. And I hope that you will be asking for it. They have a lot of other free things there too. You need to find out in their whole catalog. Well, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.